The preaching of God's Word is once again from James chapter 3 and at verse 17. James chapter 3 at verse 17. We look at another of the properties of biblical wisdom which are provided for us in this verse. And so for the sake of remembering the context here, verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, reading 13 through 18. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Well, particularly verse 17 reminds us of these properties, the wisdom that is from above. Consider the first two of those properties here included. Such wisdom is first pure, and secondly then peaceable. Now we come to this third property, which is gentle. It's an intriguing word, this word gentle. It has to do with something of... uh, Synonym, but not exactly of humility or meekness. It's something that is found with those two characteristics. Humility being something, as one has said, of a proper esteem of ourselves as low because low. What a beautiful thing one has written to say, humility is not feigned, as if in our mind we're actually high, and yet we count ourselves low. It's that It's a true assessment of ourselves that we humble ourselves and remind ourselves that we are but of the dust and we are weak creatures. But that humility, it leads to a gentleness toward others because if we're low, we aren't puffed up and arrogant. We're humble, which will then influence the way we carry ourselves to one another. You'll notice this is all about wisdom. And the more we think on this section regarding biblical wisdom, the more we see just how much what passes in various circles as wisdom perhaps has a right to that word, but only insofar as it is characterized in verse 15. There's a wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and devilish, the kind that breaks forth in bitter envying and strife, the kind that is indeed contentious and brings about evil works. So we look at leaders of our day, and quite frankly, it's difficult, isn't it, to find someone who would be considered truly wise. They may understand how to navigate difficult things. They may understand certain paradigms of thought and be able to articulate them clearly, And yet it's difficult for us to find those who are genuinely wise as the Scriptures so describe it. Pure, committed to what is holy and morally good, unmixed, 
peaceable, so making and posturing toward peace, not seeking some mere selfish gain or a party gain. And now gentle. This word gentle is translated in different ways in the New Testament and our own version in 1 Timothy 3 at verse 3. It's translated as patient. In Titus 3 and verse 2, again, it appears as gentle, but notice that it's related to meekness, a different word, that we're to show ourselves gentle, showing all meekness to all men. So gentleness, the word here, then postures ourselves, orients ourselves to a meek manner toward others. We find in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, the word translated as moderation. And so there's a governing of ourselves, that we're bringing ourselves into a proper uh, orientation toward others. These words all related, of course, to what's before us. The same word appears in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, when it speaks of Paul by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And finally, in Acts, we have that accuser of Paul who appeals to the judge and says, Hear us of the clemency, your clemency, your peacefulness, your gentleness. Indulge us, is the idea. Bear with us and our faults as we speak to one so noble. This word then, of course, is discussing the way that we approach others. So if one is wise, we know two things so far. They are going to be committed to what is holy, what is pure, and they're also going to be oriented toward others in a peaceful way. Now, this doesn't mean that they're a pushover, as we've already discussed and we'll have time to mention again, but it does mean that their target is not their personal gain, but rather for the establishing, as James writes in verse 18, uh, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace, of them that make peace. So what is it then that one who is wise, what is it that they look like toward others who are ignorant, who may be in sin, who may be boisterous and other such things? Well, James says that they are gentle. It is Christ who was most gentle. And so Paul appeals to the gentleness of Christ. Well, when we look at this, we see that God-sent wisdom, as opposed to the world's type of wisdom, makes those who are wise to deal with others in genuine gentleness. Now, this may raise questions in our minds, hopefully which will be answered, at least the majority of them. Does this mean that we just ignore sin? Does this mean that we don't stand for truth? No, not at all. But it does mean that as we do, there is a genuine and a discernible gentleness in our approach. So consider then, as we think through this, three things. Defining this gentleness. Secondly, displaying this gentleness. And thirdly, cultivating it. So what then is gentleness? We look to define it. We can define it perhaps by first negating what it's not. So negatively, Gentleness is not fragility. It's not being fragile. It's not one who is easily broken. It's not one who's always panicked. It's not one who's indifferent. It's none of those things. 
So in other words, it's not the soft petal of a flower. That's fragile. It's rather the touch of one who would caress that flower without ruining it or damaging it. Perhaps you could think of it this way. You know, a butterfly is most fragile. You and I could easily destroy it and even without purpose. But one who's gentle may find a butterfly, perhaps a leg stuck in a screen, and would gently remove it from that screen so that it can fly along. The butterfly is fragile, but the one assisting it is gentle. David's hand was strong enough to slay Goliath. You'll remember he took out the stone and uh, put it in his sling and struck Goliath in the forehead. He ran to Goliath, drew Goliath's sword, of which later he said, there's none like it, and he cut off Goliath's head. That is the hand of a warrior. Things that David did demonstrate he was a strong and valiant man. And yet David's hand, which was able to sling stones and wield a sword, was also able, able to make music with the harp. The same hand which has strength to kill uh, that David had also had the gentleness to make distinct sounds on these fragile strings to bring forth the beauty, a beautiful melody that he played unto the Lord. And so when we think about gentleness, it isn't cultivating some sort of uh, effeminate approach to life. It's rather strength that's governed or elsewhere translated moderated for the gentle approach to others. Another way that we can say what it's not is gentleness is not negligence. It's not that gentleness sees sin and neglects it. It's not that gentleness sees sin that ought to be reproved and doesn't reprove it. There's a difference between what the world counts as gentleness and what the Bible counts as gentleness. Sin, at times, is to be covered, as we've seen and we'll see again. At other times, it must be reproved. We've already talked about the difficulty sometimes we find ourselves in, which then brings us to cry out to God, Oh God, I need wisdom to know how to approach these things. But one thing gentleness isn't is an indifference to sin. It is committed to godliness, but it's also mindful of infirmity in others, weakness in others. It's mindful of ignorance in others, and it's motivated by charity toward others. And so it knows that there are times where sin needs patient treatment, gentle treatment. You can think of it this way, if an executioner who is paid by the state, you can think of former days when these things were more common, the hangman, the man of the gallows, and so on, if he treated his children who disrespected him the same way he treated a criminal who was guilty of vile crime, his children would quickly lose their lives. And so it is that one who is wise knows how to moderate the approach given the offense, committed to purity, but in a charitable disposition. 
well, if these are a couple of things that gentleness is not, what is gentleness? Well, one thing that we can say as we look at the biblical idea is that it is a marked and sincere kindness to others. And particularly, a marked and sincere kindness to others who are in error or even in sin. And so, you'll notice if you go back to the things that James has already said is a sign that it's not wisdom from above, he says it's marked by bitter envying and strife in your hearts. It breaks forth unto confusion or tumult, this breaking forth of such difficulties. There was a word that used to be used uh, very much in warning Christians about not cultivating what was known as a censorious spirit, spirit, that one who would always be censuring others for the most minute of things. A Puritan of some years back, John Trapp, wrote, anyone who is more wise is more sparing of his censures. Why is that? Because he's not neglecting sin, but he's approaching it, understanding that there's a mixed reality going on. One may be ignorant, and so they don't need the heavy hand, but they need patient instruction. One may be confused and need instruction as well. And as well, one may be weak and needs strengthening. And so all of these things moderate what's going on, and it then causes one who may have more knowledge to approach the one who is in error or in sin or in some other uh, uh, difficulty with a marked kindness. And so it shows the kindness. And it is not only something that one who thinks they're wise says of themselves, well, I'm gentle. It's something that others discern about them. This one is gentle. What's another thing that uh, this gentleness does? Well, it treats others in light of the mercy that we have received. In other words, it treats others as we have been treated. Notice in James chapter 2, you can see this idea there at verse 13. He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. James is already planting a seed of what he's going to address here in James chapter 3 before us when he's talking about this warning. If you're going around always marking out strict justice and judgment against others and barking out against others, well, this is something that's going to be shown back to you. But what happens is the one who receives mercy loves to show mercy unto others. And you can remember, of course, the parable of our Lord Jesus Christ when he spoke of the one who had a debt to a master he could never repay and was forgiven him freely. And then he found out his fellow servant who had a smaller debt and he struck to him without gentleness and was firmly and greatly reproved for it. So in other words, what gentleness does is having been shown kindness, the Lord's great patience toward us then forms us to be gentle toward others. Not indifferent to their sin, 
but gentle, patient, kind, all of those aspects of charity that we've looked at as well. Another way of looking at gentleness is by looking at the way Christ treats others. We'll think on this more fully, but it's something that's particularly mentioned by Paul as he appeals by the gentleness of Christ. Among other things that's true of Christ, he was gentle. Again, he had no idea of being complicit in the sins of others. He reproved them. He showed them. He brought them to light. And yet he did so in such a way that was undeniably gentle and helpful to those who had so sinned. And so now consider what the display of this looks like. We can think of this in a number of ways. First, by the precursor to display, if this wisdom is to be gentle, and such wisdom is the discerning of truth, the discerning of circumstances, and navigating those things to the glory of God, a gentle wisdom will begin in our thoughts as we interact with others, our hearts and desires, the internal aspect of our souls. So before it gets displayed, it has its root in our souls. So in other words, before we get to words and actions, the wisdom that is from above is gentle within. You know what it's like, of course, to be inwardly disturbed by something, and then someone, a spouse, a child, a friend, a a fellow believer, comes into your life, and you're short with them, and they say, What's wrong? You know, what's going on? What's happened? They didn't do anything to you, but there's an internal turmoil going on that then shows itself in the ripples and the waves and the sort of outbursts that come from us. And we have to say, listen, it's not you. You know, I've been wrestling with this thing. This has been going on, and I'd love to say it was you, and perhaps I've justified in my mind that it's you, but the reality is my own soul is unsettled, And that's why I've been harsh or even cruel in my approach toward you. What's the point of this? Well, if we're going to be genuinely gentle and genuinely kind to others, there has to be a soul that is settled. A soul that knows the riches of God's grace. A soul that is secure in the establishment of His peace a soul that is indeed enjoying the gentleness of God toward us. So before we can speak in ways that are gentle, before we behave in ways that are gentle, our own souls must be made gentle by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so it's important for us to think of this. The cultivating of biblical wisdom is not a get this right, do that, approach it this way. It's first, be transformed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If these things are going to display themselves, they have to be planted within us by the grace of God. We've said this already, but it's worthy of repeating, that the biblical wisdom set before us is supernatural. It's not natural. You can't go to a class in some university that teaches wisdom and then walk away and pass the class and say, now I've got biblical wisdom. You might learn characteristics of it. You might be able to get key words about it and ideas and patterns and other such things. But the display of it is only possible as the grace of God 
transforms our souls within. Now, you and I know what it is to try and white-knuckle things through. You know, okay, okay, we're supposed to be gentle. And so we sort of push ourselves through it. But that's not what the Bible's getting at. It's the wisdom that is from above. The wisdom which God gives us, plants within us, makes us to possess and be possessed by. And so as we think of the display of it, we have to think first of the implanting of it by God's grace. If you and I are going to have this biblical wisdom in all of its properties, it is only to be had as the grace of God gives it to us. But then as He does, by His grace, it will bring forth words that display this biblical wisdom, first pure, then peaceable, and gentle. Think of Proverbs 10, chapter 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a well of life. And you can think of what a beautiful picture that is, a well or a spring, that what's stored within gets dispersed as life-giving. Think of Christ's words, whose words were full of grace and truth, Himself being full of grace and truth. Grace in thy lips is poured, we sing in Psalm 45. Notice how the Christian is to be characterized in his speech as is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see for instance that, of course, the person, verse 24, is to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, there's the planting of grace. But then notice, he's to forego corrupt communication, That's not to proceed out of your mouth. Rather, verse 29, that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. There's the well of life. It's something that when I speak, I'm, as it were, providing that which would nourish a soul, would help a soul, would minister to a soul. And this, of course, is the outworking of verse 32 as well, being kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And so the grace of God planted in us as He creates us to be that new man and as He renews us in Christ transforms our hearts, our souls, our thoughts, so that now our words are ministering grace. You can think of it for a moment. Perhaps you've been to some sort of social gathering, a wedding uh, or something of that sort where people are walking around with different plates of food. And so the servers are coming by, and what are they doing? Here's some uh, snacks to chew on and eat, and here's some drinks that you can refresh yourself with. They're going about serving it. It's on a platter. And the idea is that our tongues are to be a platter that serves up that which ministers grace to the hearer. That's what's to come out of our mouths. That's to be this case in our marriages, it's to be the case with our children, it's to be the case toward our parents, toward our brothers and sisters, and even toward our enemies. Do you remember we read this last week when Christ says that we are to bless those who curse us? The only way that we can do that, of course, is if first, His grace has so transformed us, and secondly, as His grace governs us, that what flows out of our mouths is the display of what is within our souls. So the display of gentleness will include what words 
and how those words are spoken. But another display will be in our actions. You know, it's a difficult thing to think of how our gestures and our faces and our emotions and so on come off to others. We can look at somebody, we know when they're agitated, they're tapping on something, they're unable to be at peace and so on, and their you know, face is a bit contorted and whatever else. You can look at someone and say, you know, something's going on with that one. And sometimes they might be unaware of it, certain habits have developed. We can also look and say, that person is gentle, that person is kind. But it's more than just those sort of uh, nonverbal cues Actions of gentleness include the way that Christ behaves toward us. So think about for a moment how Christ is displayed in the Gospels. And so here's a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And he's gentle toward her. Does he in any way excuse her sin? Absolutely not. Because at the end of the testimony he says, go and sin no more. He acknowledges her sin. But he's gentle to bring peace and pardon and blessing to her. He sees Peter, of course. Oh, that scene of his eyes catching Peter and Peter being cut to the heart and wailing as he was brought to conviction. But later on, of course, he finds Peter and he recommissions Peter, strengthening him with gentleness. And brethren, his actions toward you and to me are likewise full of gentleness. That even when he brings affliction, is it not that it's with a heavy measurement of kindness and a gracious purpose? Never is he simply disciplining his people because he's angry, but he's disciplining his people for their good in the midst of it all. So our actions will display it. Our actions will manifest a kindness that will... Uh, be evident in how we carry ourselves. Well, how do we then cultivate this gentleness? Well, the first of these things is by realizing what we've said already, that it cannot be cultivated unless it's first given. There must be the planting of the seed of life. This is fundamental to every aspect of biblical ethics. Christian ethics demand the gracious implantation of the new life. Again, notice the context when James says, the wisdom that is from above. It's the gift of the Father. And so if we're to have this type of wisdom that's pure, peaceable, and gentle, and so on, we require that He provides it to us. Now, we realize and acknowledge fully that the Lord is sovereign in this. That there's nothing that you or I can do to manufacture, to make, to force Him to do these things. However, we also see in His Word that He's a God that works by means. And so He has appointed both the end, in this case the giving of wisdom, and the means, how it is that He orders that He ultimately provides it. And what we find is the pattern is that He gives to us a knowledge of our lack. And so, he that lacks wisdom, earlier in James, let him ask of God. So he brings us to a sense of our lack. Now let's focus, just hone in for a moment, on the gentleness of wisdom. This is certainly touched to everything else here connected to it, 
But we can hone in on this for a particular moment and ask the question, are we conscious of our lack of this aspect of wisdom? Hopefully not completely, but if that's the case, that needs to be acknowledged. But are there flare-ups? Are there moments where we lose our cool and instead of being gentle, we become harsh and full of vitriol and you know, overwhelmed with passions. We love to say, well, that's just the family's way. You know, my father, my grandfather, my cousin, my uncle, this person, that person, they were all hot-headed, and it's just who I am. I'm a fiery person, so that's who I am. Well, brethren, that's not biblical wisdom. That's wisdom that descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. We have to acknowledge first, before we can cultivate it, that we stand in need of God giving it. Now, thanks be unto God, He gives it to all of His children. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the seed of grace already, and doubtlessly, those who have known you long will be able to say, oh, I've seen growth in these things. And yet, each of us will be able to say, it's not to the level, it's not to the degree, it's not to the height that it ought to be yet. So what do we do? Well, we continue to go to God. And we confess when we aren't gentle. We say to those that have perhaps been the objects of our unkindness, we say to them, we've sinned against you. That's a difficult thing people are already embarrassed to say something like, I'm sorry. You know, in this world, it's almost a sin, it seems in the counsel of the professional advisors, to say that one has committed a sin. So someone gets caught in some scandalous thing, or they say something in public that they ought not to have said, and they get caught and called out, and they say, I'm sorry, for the impact that it's had on others. And brethren, we aren't removed from that. We often will fall short of the biblical notion of asking for forgiveness. You know, oh, I dropped the ball. Oh, I'm sorry that that happened. Oh, I'm sorry for how I put that you in a position that was difficult. Instead of coming open and out front saying, let's get something straight. I sinned against you. I am sorry for the way that's made you feel. I am sorry for this, that, and the other thing. But let me be straight. I've sinned against you. And when there are outbursts from us toward others, we need to be humbled by that to say, to the extent it's not displaying this gentleness, there's sinfulness to a degree mixed in, even to right words. So we acknowledge it, we confess it, but we also confess it to God. We humble ourselves before God and say, Oh God, I stand in need of such pardon and of such grace. I need you to be at work in me. But as we do that, we ask that He would provide more. Lord, give me a fuller portion of this biblical wisdom, such as would govern me govern my thoughts. It's an unfortunate reality that those who are zealous in early days often cool in their zeal in older days. And sometimes that's mistaken 
for a moderation and a gentleness being cultivated. We have to be clear in this. Compromising truth is not gentleness. Being willing, as it were, to tolerate open profanity is not gentleness. There is the need to expose sin. There's the need to address sin. And yet there's the need to do it with gentleness. And so, in other words, the the, the, the direct, uh, direction or the uh, uh, way of tracking someone who's growing is not, oh, they're zealous and now they're no longer zealous. It's that they're zealous and in their zeal, they're kind. They're gentle while they're zealous for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray and we say, Lord, do not let my zeal cool. Do not let me compromise truth. Do not let me look at the standards of your law and say, you know what, in 10 years from now, I hope that I'm not as careful for the exacting conformity to your law. Rather, we say, Lord, make it so that as I grow, I am more concerned about exacting conformity to your law. And yet, as that happens, give unto me wisdom that I would be committed to the purity of these things and yet would also have the growth of peaceable approaches and gentleness toward others. This is what we do. We're asking God to give us the full spectrum of His grace. Well, as He does, particularly with this, second thing we need to do is meditate on Christ's dealings. Christ, of course, is the Savior. He is the one who forgives our sins. And so it is wrong for us to think of Christ merely as an exemplar, and yet it is wrong for us to think of him not being an exemplar. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Christ says, if I'm your Lord, do what I've said. You know, you're my sheep, you're to hear my voice and follow me. And so Christ is set forth to the believer as one who's faithful living we are to follow. Well, how did Christ show forth his gentleness? We can think of it in various categories. Doubtlessly, you'll think of more as you meditate upon these things. How is he gentle toward the ignorant? Well, you can have a number of cases, but remember, for instance, when he's there, the woman at the well in uh, in Samaria, and Here he is, the Lord God of heaven and earth incarnate. And here she is, a woman who has lived adulterous lives and divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, all these different things all going on. And what does he do? Well, notice, he does not miss to point out her sin. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Well, you're right to say you don't have a husband because you've been married this many times, you've had this many husbands, and so on. So his gentleness is not ignoring the sin. And yet, it is displayed in his very clear kindness to carry her along to understand and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So she was an ignorant person. She was a Samaritan. She was bred up in that mixture of true religion with false religion, the syncretism of the Samaritans. And yet Christ was gentle toward her in light of her ignorance, not passing by the truth, 
but handling the truth with firmness and yet with a kindness that blessed of God proved to be for her ultimate good. Now, we don't mean to say, well, she wasn't a sinner, but here she stood as one who was a sinner that was ignorant. Well, what does he do with those who are open and clear sinners as well? Well, we see the similar treatment. He comes unto sinners. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is this tax collector. He's robbed from people. He's a despised man. He comes to Christ, or to, Christ comes to Zacchaeus, come down from going to your house today. And he goes, and he opens to him the way of salvation. And Zacchaeus, who is a son of Abraham, comes to faith out of the gentleness of Christ. Did Christ compromise the truth? Not at all. He held fast to the truth, but he was gentle in his handling of Zacchaeus. You can think of the disciples, so believing men who yet were struggling at various times and sinners. And so the disciples in the ship, they're scared out of their minds. They look back at Christ and they rouse him to waken and they say to him, Master, don't you care we perish? There's an implication there if it's not explicit. You aren't doing what you should be doing. And Christ stands up, says to the winds, peace be still, the winds stop, the, the, the lake which was overrun with waves is now uh, still, and he turns to his disciples and he says, O ye of little faith. Now think about what he's done. In their panic-stricken moment, he actually answers their concern. He brings peace to the trouble. But in his gentleness, he doesn't miss out on addressing the sin of unbelief. You see it, for instance, in Peter, right? So Peter's walking on the water. Christ is standing on the water. And then Peter sees the waves and he begins to sink. And what does Peter do? He says, Master, Lord, save me, I perish. Now, if Christ were not gentle, he'd say, well, Peter, you deserve it. You've taken your eyes off of me. You know, don't you know that faith is supposed to trust me at all times? Don't you realize that I'm worthy of trust? You deserve to drown now, Peter. You're done, and I'm done with you. No, what does he do? His hand reaches down and saves Peter. He's gentle. He doesn't forego addressing the sin, but he does so with kindness, gentleness. Is it not the case with you and with me? In our sins. Oh, how gentle and long suffering Christ has been, coming with word time and time again, and convicting our souls by his Spirit, using the words of others, the actions of providence, and most gently leading us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Someone says, Well, he was bold. He was bold. There are times where we would say his zeal did consume him. You remember the occasion? He sees the house of prayer made this place of business and he gets the uh, whip and he turns over the money changer tables and he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, there's something to be discerned. How did he speak of the Pharisees? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and so on. Two things to note in his heavy 
hand toward others. His heavy hand toward others is either, if you survey the scriptures, addressed to those who are misleading and misguiding people unto damnable errors. And when that's happening, he addresses the teachers who are far more culpable and heinously engaged in sin, and so comes with a heaviness and a stoutness of sorts that is there. Why? Because he has concern for the masses who are being misled. When you see him turn over the tables, his zeal that's consuming him is because, think of what he says, this is to be a house of prayer for all people, for all nations. He sees the corruptions coming in that is actually destroying a mercy toward others. And so his zeal that's being shown is both for the Father's glory, but also for the good of the people. And so he actually has a posture toward others of helping them through these things. His fiercest opposition is toward those in high places who are abusing their calling and misguiding God's people. But his overwhelming display is a gentleness toward those who in their ignorance continue in different ways whom he corrects and whom he guides unto salvation. So what do we do to cultivate it further? Well, in meditating upon Christ, we then set our aim upon Christ's aim, which is first serving the Lord, And so we have to remember something. The wrath of God, as the Scriptures say, does not accomplish the purpose. The wrath of man does not accomplish the purpose of God. In other words, our anger is not that which is an instrument to further the work of God. So if we set our aim upon serving the Lord, it's necessarily going to set us into a position of this wisdom which is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, and so on. Because that's the instrument that the Lord uses to bring forth His kingdom. So think of it this way. If you were going to go to a concert, and it was to be a violin concert of some sort, some famous violinist uh, were to stand and give a concert, and then he or she stands up and gets out a tuba, you would be struck uh, with this false advertising. You know, the instrument was supposed to be a violin. The tuba can't do what a violin's supposed to do. Well, brethren, here's the point. Your anger, your agitation cannot do what you're supposed to do in service to the Lord. To bring forth the melody that the Lord intends demands that we be mastered by this biblical wisdom which has as a property most forthright that of gentleness. Our aim then as well is to helping others, to serve them, to guide them. We're thankful you think about those who have borne with us in learning simple lessons about grammar or writing or math. Some of us have had teachers that weren't so patient. You're learning your multiplication tables and the first error gets a, a lash of the tongue or something and now you're frightened. And instead of being brought to love the lesson, you come to despise the lesson. And brethren, if we're going to bring others along, it is a beautiful thing to be like the lesson we're teaching, which is a merciful, gracious, and gentle thing.
So brethren, as we close, as we think about biblical wisdom, its gentleness, fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps above all else, to help you and me in it, fix your eyes upon him as he is toward you, as he is gentle toward you. And as you do, you'll see something that we've been emphasizing. He neither looks at your sin with indifference, nor does he berate you for your ignorance. He rather reproves lovingly, faithfully, and yet without any hesitation. His approach to us is understood as for our good. And that's how we're to be toward others, in our wisdom, in our carriage toward others, gentle, loving, helping them. Close with a quote from Matthew Poole when he says, speaking of this, it's that gentleness by which we bear with others' infirmities, forgive injuries, interpret all things for the best, recede from our own right for peace's sake, and as opposed to that austerity and rigidness in our practices and censures, that we will bear with nothing, which will bear with nothing in weak, dissenting, or offending brethren. And so we have this set before us. The question that comes is, will this be that which we crave of the Lord, cultivate by His grace, and display for the good of our brethren and the advance of His kingdom? God, make it so. Would you stand with me? for prayer.